You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Um, if you're here this morning, then you must really, really need Jesus, because if ever there was a morning to not be here, to be under the covers, in bed, watching online, or probably watching Netflix, um, this, was, this was it. So you missed your chance. Sorry. Um, welcome to Redemption Church. We're a community that offers connection to Jesus for absolutely anyone through uh, we're seeking connection and redemption through grace and sharing and exploration. I'm glad you're here. Um, if you're new to redemption, um, there's a little card in front of you in the seat back. If you want to grab that, fill it out, um, drop it in the black box on the way out the door. Um, that's just your way of letting us know, hey, I'm here. Um, you didn't say anything super weird, so I'm still kind of interested. <laughs> um, and we will get in touch with you this week. Say hi. We're not going to bug you and do anything weird like show up to your house or something strange. But... Um, so we're in this, we're in this series, we're, really we're in this year of hope that we started back in the fall, and we're in this series where we're exploring what I will contend is the most uh, hopeful chapter in all of the scriptures. And we're doing this because we, like, one of the words of 2023 is polycrisis, right? This is one of the trending buzzwords of our year. This defining theme is that there is so much happening globally right now that we have to make up a word that somehow uh, defines and explains it. But then on top of that, underneath all of that, each and every one of us are dealing with, right, maybe it's just because I became the like head pastor six months ago, but it feels like in the last year, I keep hearing over and over and over and over from individuals like just a, a level of like, oh my God, like in the last several years of my life, like things have been unraveling at an alarming rate. Um, one of our core tenets of the faith is that something is drastically wrong with the world. And I don't want us for a second to, to somehow mishear that when, when we say that we are in a year of hope, that what, that what that really means is, hey, everything's fine. Like, I know it feels bad and it seems bad and it looks bad, but no, no, really, it's actually good because Jesus. I think that one of the things that Jesus modeled and invites us into is to real substantial lament where we can actually and honestly look at the darkness and call it what it is dark and evil and unthinkable. This week, particularly on the heels of multiple mass shootings on the West Coast, and the heels of yet another video, 
It hasn't been years, y'all. It's been decades of this. And honestly, I'm, I'm left sitting here going, Lord, like, what do we do? Where do we go? And so I, I felt like uh, maybe you're coming in here in a much better place, in a much more hopeful place. Maybe hopeful is the wrong word. I'm very hopeful. Maybe you're coming in here in a much more optimistic place. Um, if you were looking for your best life now, you've come to the wrong church. <laughs> Uh, sorry. Can we start with a moment of silence, right? And not a moment of silence in some sort of weird commemorative. But as a congregation, can we come together and can we begin our worship this morning with the confession that we really don't have much to offer, Lord, and we need you? And can we just sit in the brokenness and in the neediness and direct our hearts to God for just a moment. I want to invite you right now to sit with me in silence. Maybe that's lament, maybe that's quiet prayer, but just be in the presence of the one who has assured us and has promised us that he will make all things new. My hope is that Jesus will begin to really and actually stir substantive hope in us. Not some sort of veneer of optimism, not some sort of, oh, I know it seems really bad, but really it's all okay because Jesus, but some real actual hope in the midst of our grief, in the midst of our darkness, in the midst of our suffering. Because this is what Jesus models and invites us into. Um, there's no real good segue into this, so I'm just going to slam her into fourth, and we're going to keep going. Uh, this morning, I want to I wanna ask the question of, like, uh, grapple with this question of, who am I? And y'all can listen to me talk about who, no, I'm just kidding, right? I'm inviting all of us into this question for you to ask the question, who am I? And I think that one of the most essential ways that we answer this question, whether this is consciously or subconsciously, is we answer this question by, by answering the question of who God is. Our understanding of who God is, what God is like, what God thinks of me so directly, even if it's like subversively, impacts our understanding of who we are. Our transcendent, our, con- or, sorry, our concept of the divine simultaneously springs out from our subconscious, but also then informs our subconscious. You're like, wow, dude, that was, you went like, let me, let me explain to you what I mean. When we hear that God is our father, up from that statement wells all sorts of assumptions, some that are right and some that are dead wrong about who God is and what God is like. And then we then take those assumptions and God as our father is now being brought back onto who we are as God's children. And so we begin to form our, our identity based on some things that may or may not actually be true. Um, to get into this a little bit, so Carl Jung 
was a contemporary of Sigmund Freud, and he has this whole like psychoanalysis thing that I, that I think is actually helpful for this conversation. So he, uh, this is a really, like if anyone in here is like, I'm a Jungian, you're, I'm about to do some really terrible things. Look away, okay? Right, but basically he explains, look, all of us are like icebergs, right? So you got this, the water here, and then floating above is this little tip of us that is our persona. It's that, that part of us that the outside world sees that we want the outside world to see. But then underneath the surface is this giant, massive bulk of who we are. And some of that is like repressed, like we're shoving it down intentionally. I don't want the world to know that I can be an angry person. I don't want the world to know that I have biases and prejudices. I don't want the world to see this side of me, right? But some of that is not even conscious. Some of that is behavior that like people can see, but you don't even recognize. Like when someone does this to me, I just get really angry and I have no explanation as to why that is. And so much of this underneath part of us is defined and shaped and formed by like our familial baggage and upbringing. And like, I don't just mean like your parents, I do mean that, but I also mean like the culture that you grew up in, the religion that you grew up in, like the shape, the form of that religion that you grew up in is all like floating there under the surface, just waiting to come out of us. Right, and so my point is this, like underneath all of that, when we start to try to talk about and to know God, there's this big giant iceberg uh, floating beneath the surface that's informing that, that then comes back and informs who we are, who we think we are, that sort of thing. But what Jesus does is he comes in from the outside of that circle and he defines God for us. He shows us what God is, what God is like, uh, apart from some of this baggage. And so at some, in some sense, our understanding of God is bound by our experiences of the world around us, right? Uh, I don't want to get too philosophical here, but that, that extends to like, hey, I know God as father. Some of that depends on what was my father like? Did I know my father? But then even at a more philosophical level, like some of that is also like the type of language we use and the words that we have to even talk about God and describe God. Our categories for who God is and what God is like are bounded by our experiences. And so this metaphor of God as father elicits a variety of responses, largely based on our circumstances. Right? Like if you've been around the church at any level, we've heard this taught in a way that's either really gross and toxic and unhelpful or taught in a way that's like, no, 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 but God's not your father at all, and we just need to, right? And I think somewhere in between is probably helpful. So knowing God as father is going to help us know who we are in Jesus. And I want to acknowledge that when Romans is using this language of God as father, when Jesus is using this language as God as father, this is absolutely patriarchal language. And this is not Jesus saying, hey, we should all be patriarchal because God is a father and therefore God is male. That is absolutely not what is being said. We'll get there in just a second. I'm getting ahead of myself. Why in the world would Jesus use this language as father? Right? He corrects lots of things in the religion of the first century Judaism. 
Why did he not correct this? What is he trying to say by calling God Father? What is he trying to get at by teaching us to pray Father in heaven? And it's not saying anything about maleness, okay? Rather, it's saying something about humanness. And so now that I've either angered you or piqued your interest or maybe a little bit of both, let's dive into this. What I want to do today is is simultaneously deconstruct some stuff, but also rebuild, hopefully, some life and joy at what Jesus is inviting us into. So Romans chapter 8, verse 14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Uh, So this is coming out of the NIV translation. If you've got your Bibles, I would encourage you to open up to your translation of choice. They've all got some strengths. They've all got some weaknesses. There is no divine translation. um, So just know that. And we're going to explore that a little bit here for just a moment. This is the NIV, verse 14, this is the NIV. Uh, If you've got a Bible and you've got it in front of you, you might notice, depending on your translation, that it says something quite different. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Right now, the NIV is is rightly trying to helpfully remove some of this patriarchal language. Well, no, 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 no. Like all of us, male and female, regardless of gender, are being invited into this, this familial relationship with the divine. But I want to suggest that what Romans is doing here is actually has nothing to do with maleness and femaleness, but instead what Romans is doing is absolutely utilizing and leveraging this language of sons of God. So in most places, I would go, yeah, NIV, absolutely, right? We should translate brothers to brothers and sisters. We should translate like any sort of son and male and that sort of thing into like human, okay? But in this case, I think Paul, the author of Romans, is getting at something a little bit different. So in a few verses, he's going to say the same thing, children of God, but he uses a different word. So here he's going to use the Greek word for sons. Later on, he's going to use the Greek word for children. And so the question becomes like, wait, uh, what is he doing? So we're going to go to, you're going to, welcome to Bible class. I'm glad you're here. Um, I want to I go back a little bit into some of the culture, uh, this patriarchal culture, and, and, and help us see what we're trying to communicate about God through this language. So sons of God, let's talk about this for just a second. So Julius Caesar, right, who was big Caesar, uh, died like around 40-ish uh, BC, I think, somewhere in there. Don't quote me on that. There's historians that are like, nope, that's wrong. Somewhere in that ish, okay? Before Jesus, he died. He's got a guy, Octavian, that's his son. We're going to talk more about him in just a second. Uh, so Julius uh, basically begins to be known as Divus Lulius, uh, the divine Julius. Y'all didn't know I knew Latin. I don't. Octavian, who's going to be a son, this is the guy who, who changes his name to Augustus, Caesar Augustus. Like if you've ever heard of a Caesar, it was Augustus. Like this is the guy right? Caesar Augustus wanted to take a census back at the beginning of Jesus's life, right? That's this guy. So he becomes known as son of the divine. And on all of the coins, in order to remind everyone of his relationship to this Caesar who was divine, he puts Julius, or sorry, Augustus, Divi Filius, son of God. Right? Now, uh, in addition to this, one of the early church's favorite titles for Jesus was the Son of God. 
And part of what's being done there is a very intentional anti-empire propaganda. Caesar is not the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. Caesar, uh, we don't owe all of our allegiance to Caesar. We owe all of our allegiance to Jesus. Caesar is not our ruler. Jesus is our ruler. In addition to all of the facts of like the changing of the nature of Jesus, sorry, not the changing of the nature, but like we are saying that, that Jesus is the son of God. He is like God in every possible way because he is in fact God. Okay, so when Paul is telling us that all who are led by God's spirit are sons of God, this is not saying all of us who are led by, spirits are, are led by the spirit are suddenly going to become males. Alarm. <laughs> but he's saying something more than just, hey, we're, we're all God's children. There's something about the identity and the standing and the nature of the people who are led by the Spirit of God that Romans is trying to direct us to. As being sons of God, it says something about who we are now and our new standing in a world of sin and death in relationship to the divine one, to God. So there is a change in we were this and now we're this. This is the quality. This is the type of person that these people are. All who are led by the Spirit of God are like God. We'll keep coming back to this. Verse 15. So the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Right? So again, here the NIV is translating this more literally. This is not uh, adoption as children. This is adoption as sonship. Again, we're going to get back to this. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Okay, so we need to pause here, and we need to talk about language for just a second. You're like, oh my gosh, really? Um, maybe this is getting too much in the weeds, but I don't often get into the weeds. So I, when Zach used to preach, I used to tell Zach all the time, hey, stop showing your work, right? Just show us the answer. He's a, he's a math guy. Like, you're showing us all your work. No one cares about the work. Just give us the answer. I'm going to show you some of the work today. Um, so all language about God is metaphorical. And uh, we won't even get into that, like, all language is metaphorical, okay? That's a whole other conversation. So we necessarily have to talk about God in ways that are imperfect, right? So God, who is way beyond us, is way infinite, is way more than anything we can possibly grasp or conceive of, we are, we are describing God. And in our description of God, we are not nailing down, no pun intended, Oh, sorry. We are not like, we're not putting God in a box and saying that God is absolutely like this. So it's like God is father, so he could never be mother when the scriptures talk about him as mother all over the place. So the question is, wait, what is the metaphor directing our attention to? What is it trying to say about God? And rather than thinking of it in terms of like dictionary definition, well, God is a father. No, no, no. Think about it as, as like language that's trying to paint a picture. It's like this impressionistic 
peace that in language we're trying to get at and grasp and offer some clarity as to exactly what this unknowable way beyond us utterly mysterious and holy God is like Uh, he's a father which in the context of a patriarchal society what does that mean he's in charge he has the authority He's the caretaker of this household. There is no one uh, besides him that makes these decisions, that is responsible, that it, right? That all of a sudden, this picture begins to be painted in a way that is not prescriptive. This is not God saying, and so patriarchy is right. God as Father is not a prescription for how gender ought to function in the world but is rather utilizing language that, that leverages how gender actually functioned in the world. It's contextual. It's incarnational. Right? The same way that, that we say weird things and we understand what it means, uh, we do this all the time when we're talking about God. Let me give you a really obvious example because uh, I feel like we're still a little vague here. All over the place... Um, the scriptures talk about God having body parts. It talks about God's nose when he's angry or seated at God's right hand as if God could be seated at all. Well, does God have a right hand? Well, I know Jesus has a right hand, but I'm not asking if Jesus, I'm asking if the Godhead, the, the three-in-one God has a right hand. Or is that language that's actually directing us to something that's true about God? Right, and isn't this how language works? Uh, we read a story to our daughter all the time, or try to read a story to our daughter all the time. She actually hates this book. Um, I love you to the moon and back. Well, I didn't actually get in a rocket ship and go to the moon and then come back and be like, see, I love you, right? It's metaphorical language. It's trying to make a point that is absolutely true, but is like packaged in something that if you were to like try and nail it down and say, take it literally, is not necessarily true. Okay, I've got some understanding looks and some confused looks, so we'll keep going. (laughs) So this language, this language's father was co-opted to describe an indescribable God and our relationship to that God, right? So they have to choose a word. If I'm going to describe God, I have to start speaking. And as, as soon as I say something about God, there's going to be truth in it, and there's probably, like, if I push it too far, there's going to be something about it that's like, well, actually, right? And so we rightly recognize God as Father is metaphorical language. Right? Surely no one is expecting to go to their birth certificate, open it up, and be like, see, God is my Father, right? Maybe Jesus, but that's it. And so this language is trying to teach us something about divineness and about humanness and not about maleness and femaleness. This is not trying to say something like, hey, God is Father, and so therefore that says something about the quality of women or the quality of men. It's absolutely not the case. So in addition to this patriarchal baggage, (laughs) We also have our, like, our own family baggage that we bring to this metaphor, right? Our own father paints pictures of God as father in some ways that might be helpful, but also might be incredibly unhelpful. 
And all of this in the context of who am I? And so if I'm hearing this in a patriarchal sense, or if I'm hearing this in the context of like, I had an abusive father, I had an absent father, I had an emotionally distant father, I had whatever type of father, all of a sudden now our, our thoughts about what God thinks about us are shaped by that, malformed by that. And suddenly we begin to perceive ourselves in some ways that aren't very helpful and maybe aren't true. We import ideas for what it means to be children of God. And so, what exactly is the point of this passage? It's not about maleness. It's not about, um, right, importing family baggage. What is this passage saying about us? We're children of God. We can all hold hands and sing, we're children of God, and we can, like, I don't know, move to the West Coast and smoke weed and (laughs) <laughs> it's our children's pastor, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> we are the world, right? But there's more here. This isn't just like, hey, you're children of God, because we're all children of God. There's more meat on the bones. There's like something I want you to hear that you can actually walk out of here with and cling to in a way that might like be transformative for you. Verse 15, the spirit that you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again, but rather the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. So the first thing I want us to see here is that this is a spirit of acceptance. That those who are led by the spirit of God are children of God, are sons of God, which, right, we're gonna talk about exactly what that means, but the first thing that it means is that you have been chosen. You have been accepted. You have been embraced and received by Jesus. There's no asterisks to that. There's no if you dot, dot, dot. Regardless of who you are, where you're coming from, what your background is, what, you, what decisions you made last night, some of you are like, well, I'm real uncomfortable now. No, that's okay. None of y'all were here. Y'all were all praying last night. You were doing Bethmore Bible studies. It was great. If you were here a couple weeks ago, that joke landed. If not, that's fine. But we were accepted. So I got a message from uh, an old friend last night. Hey, I'm looking for a church in Houston, and I love this person because like, when people are like um, unchurched, Right, they haven't grown up around the church. They don't know the right like, church language to use. And so they just put it in ways that are actually really helpful because it's just really direct and blunt. I'm looking for a church that's like, like about God's love instead of like fear. I'm looking for a love church, not a fear church. I'm like, God, that's so beautiful and so perfect. I want redemption to be a love church because Jesus is a love God. He's inviting us to be a love people. And yet we hear that so often and then we find ourselves in communities that are fear-based. God is a God of love, so you'd better, right? Or else. We hear this passage being taught as a fear-based passage when really it's a passage of reassurance. If you're led by the Spirit of God and the assumption is that if you're hearing this letter, then of course you're led by the Spirit of God. So we'll... Of course, you're the sons of God, right? 
So our shadow, right, going back to young, our shadow, our baggage of our family origins is, begins to try and impose itself on our understanding of who God is and what God is like, more importantly, what God thinks of us. But Paul here is insisting that this is different, that God's spirit is not leading us to fear into slavery, into some sort of like, we have to now uh, serve this new slave master. Even though that's language he uses in a previous chapter, he's now like redefining that. It's like, no, 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 this isn't slavery into fear. This is adoption into sonship. This is like a completely different metaphor. So let's unpack this. Like the last thing I'm going to unpack this morning, I promise there's luggage everywhere we have unpacked. Um, So adoption in the first century in Rome. So we hear adoption and we have like an understanding of like, oh my gosh, there's some people in need and they're, they're young and they're vulnerable and I need to help them. And maybe we pity them or maybe we think it's the right thing to do. And so we adopt them and like, absolutely, those are good things. I'm not trying to poo poo those things, but this is absolutely not how adoption in the first century worked. So in Judaism, there's really no conception of adoption. They had some stuff in the law that like would make it to where you wouldn't really need it. And they weren't fans of abandoning your children. And so adoption wasn't really like written into any of the law codes in Judaism. So the question is like, wait, what is Paul talking about? Why is he using this adoption language? So we go to the Roman culture and like, wait, what did Romans think about adoption? Well, first, Romans love to abandon their kids. Right? One of the things that the, the early church was known for was literally like pulling kids out of ditches and taking them in as their own to the point that like the Romans accused the Christians of cannibalism because they thought that they were taking the babies and eating them, right? They got confused with like the Lord's Supper. Wait, they're drinking blood and eating meat and they're picking babies up off the side of the road. I know what they're doing, right? So they abandoned their kids. Adoption was not like a cultural value. Bringing in vulnerable kids was not a Roman thing to do. So then what was adoption? It was willingly and eagerly choosing your heir. Willingly and eagerly choosing your heir. So in the Roman world, adoption was not done out of pity or out of responsibility or even out of morality, but it carried with it the full rights and privileges of sonship. This is why Paul is using son language in a patriarchal society. Women, you are being invited into, uh, by Jesus and by the Spirit, into this inheritance that in a patriarchal society only belonged to men. Sorry, I get excited. I lost my place too. (laughs) And so the spirit of adoption tells us that God willingly and eagerly chose us. Right, think about this for just a second. I think this is something that subconsciously uh, probably I struggle with a little bit. I don't like air my grievances on live TV. (laughs) We have a live stream in case you're wondering what that is. Um, like I grew up without a father. Like my, my dad was alive and around but made some choices and I was not one of those choices. And that has shaped and influenced me in significant ways. And that has shaped and influenced my perception of God in significant ways. And this idea that God has willingly and eagerly chosen me is one that's just really hard for my heart to like grasp. 
And when I find myself falling into any sort of like sin or rebellion or like struggling, like believing God, it usually comes back to this. But no, don't you need me to dot, dot, dot in order for you to love me? Don't you need me to perform in order for you to to choose me? But what Paul tells us here is, no, 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 God wants you. Just like you are right now. God wants you. He's not obligated to save you. There's not like, well, God, this is who I am and what I'm like, so gosh, I guess I've got to like save him or something. I guess I'll die. I don't know. God chose you. Right? And we hear that language and now we're like, well, now this is like Calvinism. It's like, okay, stop. Put that on the shelf for just a second and hear me. God chose you. God willingly and eagerly said, yes. You. He chose you to be in love with him. He chose you to be his forever and ever and ever. So there's more that this Roman idea of adoption can help us with. So in the Roman world, it had less to do with protecting vulnerable children, and adoption had more to do with protecting the family. So oftentimes, um, this was particularly true of powerful families. Everything that we know about adoption, it was not like an impoverished family adopting impoverished children. It was powerful families oftentimes adopting adults, like grown men. And the point was adoption served as a way to determine who the paterfamilias would be to carry on the religious, economic, and civic guidance of the family. Go watch The Sopranos, all of a sudden. Like you get an idea of what was going on in Rome at the time. Because of this, it's common to see adoption, not of children, but of adults. And so we see this, like, really, like, one of the only examples of adoption that we have in the Roman world is this really crazy one. Um, so we talked about it a little bit. So Julius Caesar, before he dies, he writes a will, like, before he was stabbed in the back, at two brute, right? Before that whole thing happens. He, he's like, hey, I'm going to write a will, and in that will, he adopts his grandnephew, Octavian. But he does it upon his death. What this implies, what this means, is that upon Julius Caesar's death, Octavian just became the next Caesar. Now, here's what's wild about that Julius already had a blood born son. And because of adoption, Octavian usurps that and becomes the son of God, becomes the next Caesar, becomes Augustus. This is what Paul, this is the language that Paul is using to describe our situation here. So adoption was almost always meant to elevate, or sorry, always, almost always meant an elevation in one's social standing. So Octavian, who was some sort of general or leader in the Roman army, all of a sudden, overnight, in an instant, becomes Caesar. Not because of blood, not because he earned it. He was just given it through adoption. Paul ends this verse with the spirit of fear 
that leads us to cry out, Abba, Father. Right? So in, in case we just start to think that this is transactional, we start to lose sight of the love and the heart of God in this. Paul beautifully and brilliantly tags this on the end. So Abba was the Aramaic for like younger, but true-born children. Right? So Octavian wasn't going around calling Julius father. And yet, this spirit is leading us to call God Father. This is a spirit that leads us into the bosom of God. Leads us into God, not away from God and fear. So the spirit moves each of us into direct communion with the one who eternally extends love towards us. Seeking working towards our wholeness and love. And so this language as children, as sons, this is inheritance language. This is status-changing language. But it's also deeply affectionate language. We are invited into real and actual affection with God. Okay, let's wrap this up. Verse 16. So the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, right? So you can see it very clearly now here. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Wait, 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 hold on. So if Jesus is the son of God, if Jesus is the heir of God, then we are being made sons of God. We are being made co-heirs with Christ. This is why the early church calls Jesus not just God, not just Lord, not just Messiah, but they call him brother. He has made himself our brother. He has reached down and brought us up. And this is the radical inclusion of divine adoption. That no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what religious background you have or non-religious background you have, no matter what decisions you made last night, no matter what your gender is, your sexuality, no, no matter what it is about you, Jesus has made us like him. We are given the same spirit of God. And we are given the same inheritance as Jesus. And so with Jesus, we are sons of God and we are being formed into people of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. We are being made like him. This is a real invitation. So who am I? Well, when Jesus is tempted, Two of the temptations begin like this. If you're really the son of God, then dot, dot, dot. And the third one was a temptation to deny who Jesus was and worship uh, the father of lies instead of worshiping God. And yet Jesus was deeply rooted in who God said he was, not in what he had to do in order to prove that. 
So, so what I'm hoping that we can walk out of here with is like, yeah, what you do absolutely matters. There are ramifications to your decisions. But more than that, who God has said you are matters more. And who God says you are ought to inform what you do, not the other way around, where you think what I do determines who God says I am. And so we begin to conceptualize ourselves above everything else, above our behavior, above our race, above our education, above our wealth, above our circumstances, above everything. It is all subservient to the reality that Jesus calls us brother and that God calls us sons of God, children of God, his. And in this, God shatters the patriarchy by giving women the rights as sons of God. And shatters slavery by giving slaves the full rights as inheritance like sons. And God shatters our own rejection of God, giving us rights as his children. We all, each of us, in Christ, by that same spirit, in each and every one of us, are God's children. And we cry out, Father. And this is the first and the last word the spirit of God is speaking over you. You belong to me. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.